That's going much faster to a place 
that we all want to be there so badly, all of us, each and every year in the world. And that is that place where there's no hastara anymore, there's no concealment. It's like a Yom Shekul or Shabbos. And the way that we in this beautiful community have been approaching, interpreting, and experiencing these days has been fueled with a tremendous amount of otherworldly chizuk that we've all been receiving from the Shivaon. We were all there at the first two Levi's when Leo just started pouring out his heart, speaking about Emuna, Emuna, Emuna. And we all remember when Leo mentioned a Torah that he had heard from one of our very, very special guests tonight. It's not a guest, sorry, it's not guests. This is a mishpacha, it's not Orzim. A teaching that he had heard from Rabbi Goldberg that Emuna is focusing on what you have and not focusing on what you don't have. And we have a lot. We have a lot. We have each other. We have Eretz Yisrael. We should have Eretz Yisrael. And we have so many friends and teachers from near and far that are working for Am Yisrael Yomun Balayla. And it gives us a, a tremendous amount of stakar satov, but a feeling of closeness to two rabbeim that have been mashping on many of us in this room for a long time without them even knowing it as we were discussing throughout the day. And on Leo as well, who had told me how many years he's been receiving chizuk and strength from Moreno Yakar, from Goldberg, Maranda Asra, Bogoraton Synagogue, as well as from Edidenu Moreno Rabshashashta, one of the Rabbeim in Young Israel of Woodmere, and both of their Torahs have been finding the hearts of many of us through Wayu Torah and other avenues and other channels. So tonight is a night to continue that mahalach, that exact mahalach, and to be together, to hear with each other, to give koach, to receive koach. And tonight we have two yidin that didn't just uh, pay a shiva call through an email or a text, but flew here. So Be'ezer Hashem, we should just come out closer, stronger, deeper. And like I said at the beginning, it should just be the next time we're here, and many more times that we're gathered like this, we're dancing and we're singing. Be'ezer Hashem, we're going to be greeting Melech HaMashiach because of Mamash. Amen. It gives me a great honor to introduce and ask Rabbi from Goldberg to please begin. Shlomo, thank you for hosting. Thank you for your friendship. Thank you for your inspiration. And I'm sorry it's in this way, but what is chus to see this beautiful kehillah, this magnificent shul. So much more than a shul to see this movement that's being created in this space, just touching so many all over. And we should gather only for, for simchas. A shechter to be here on this journey with you it gives me a lot of chizuk. And I thank you for 
very hard for me to address you tonight because I feel so incredibly, grossly inadequate to give chizok, to say words, speaking to a room full of people who've intertwined your destiny with our Jewish homeland, with the miracle that is the modern state of Israel, the bright lines of the Jewish future, community who is most reeling from this inexplicable tragedy of loss, which has broken Klal Yisrael around the world. What role and what words and what right? Because we took a comfortable flight direct from New York, from Florida, to be here for a few hours to get physic, and maybe to give a little bit. So I feel really grossly inadequate. But I can't describe to you the feeling that I had when Rev. Leo referenced me and the message and the power of Torah. The Jews whose bodies have never been in the same room, who've never spoken, who've never met, but whose souls whose neshamas could be learning and drinking from the same fountain of Torah can feel so incredibly close. It wasn't a choice, if to come. But I, we felt drawn by that magnetism and by that meaning. And if Rav Leo said over the last several years, we've had the privilege to learn together virtually, over the last 10 days, he's become my Rebbe through his courage and his strength and his amuna and his love and his light and the messages that he's been using this horrifically tragic and unwelcome platform to communicate very diverse audiences and people and messages. What a powerful teacher to us all. And while Revelio has been projecting this incredible sense of amuna, the strength without questions, we're just coming off of the yont of the holiday of questions. And the story is told Maybe the illustrious Rav has told it recently here of the Kiddushas Levi, the Helik of the Ditchover, the Tzaddik, or Levi Yitzchak, when he got to the Manashtana. Told it recently. Not recent enough. Not recent enough. <laughs> Last year. I'm going to tell a Ditchover story here in front of Clearly sleep deprived. So you know the story. In a moment. They got to the fear kashas, the four questions, the Manishtah, or Levi Yitzchak put his head down on the table and was silent, and everybody at the Seder waited. And the moment turned into a minute, and the minute turned into five, and five into ten, or Levi Yitzchak didn't lift his head off the table. And everyone waited, and everyone wondered, the Tzaddik, what is he thinking, what is he doing? It's the middle of the royal regal night of the Seder that we just experienced. And finally, when he lifted his head off the table, he said, four questions? Four questions? If we start to ask, we don't have four questions, we have 400 questions, we have 4,000 questions. We have 4 million questions. Today was Yom HaShoah, we have 6 million questions. And here tonight, we have 6 million and 3 questions, at least. If we start to ask, if we start to wonder, then there is no end to the questions, 
to the challenge, to the doubt, to the uncertainty, to the pain. To the pain. It's okay that we're hurting. It's okay that we're in pain. It's appropriate, it's correct. It's the halakha. It's what mourning and grieving are all about and we'll, we'll hear more about. We'll hear more about. It's not a contradiction of our amuna in Hashem and our faith and our recognition that nothing is random. To also, to cry tears, to bawl, to feel broken. It's an incredible medrash. I read in a sefer about a prominent Rav who had lost a child and lived with incredible guilt over the contradictory emotions he was trying to reconcile. On the one hand, some wavering and unequivocal, unequivocal faith in Hashem, a sense that everything that Hashem does is good and for the best, and how could we question on the other? The only natural questions that arise are the pain, the tears, the profound and deep grief. How could he make sense of it? And the contradiction was it a failure, a breakdown in Amunah? And he went to speak to one of his Rebbeim. One of the Gedoli Yisrael appointed him to an incredible medrash. It's not a medrash that's well known enough, but it should be. It describes that Avram Avinu on the way to the Akedah simultaneously had tears streaming down his cheeks and simcha in his heart. That Avram Avinu was able to hold and able to maintain those two emotions simultaneously. They're not contradictions. They can coexist. They're both true, they're both real, they both deserve to be honored. A person has a simcha in their heart to know that we surrender and we submit and we yield to the will of the Ratzon Hashem, that He's in charge and He's control and we work for Him, He doesn't work for us, that we're not entitled to understand and we can't comprehend in this world. We're not the first to ask and we won't be the last to ask and we will not get answers here and now. A person can surrender and have the wholeness in their heart and the simcha in their heart to know that there is an Almighty, there is a Rebbeinu Shalom, there is a Rebbeinu Shalom, He is in charge, He is in control, and one day we will understand. And at the same time, the tears can stream down our cheeks. That doesn't dull or take away the pain and the grief and the brokenness and the hole that's in our heart. And so, whatever Rav Leo is displaying and portraying, and whatever he is finding the strength with his family is for him, and that doesn't have to be the standard for us. And the way that we are reacting and responding and what this means for us doesn't have to be for him. Each in their own way. But it's not a contradiction in Amuna to also be grief-stricken and broken. Earlier today at the Shiva home, Rav Leo quoted Viktor Frankl, the great psychotherapist who survived Today, an appropriate day to invoke his memory. Man's search for meaning. And so much of that work is based on a comment of Nietzsche that he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. He who has a why to live for. If we know why we're here, what life is all about, and what is our mission, and what are we meant to do, if we have a why, if we have a why to our lives, then we can bear almost anyhow. And Rav Leo expressed how that's getting him through this time. He's focused and dedicated on the why and using this pain as a platform to challenge so many people to leave their comfort zone and to do the things that will bring finally a gogula 
and eliminate this pain and reunite us with those who are no longer here. He is heavily, intensely focused on the why. Not the lama, not getting stuck or caught up in the lama, but focused on the lama. Now what? What do we do? How do we react? How can we repair this world? And in that capacity, he's taught us so many lessons. But I want to expand on it well on one in particular to share the chizak. I'm trying to draw and eagerly to hear the chizak of my dear chaverim and colleagues as well. Our why, our why, why? What is the why of Yiddishkeit? What is the why of Torah? What is the why that can get us to almost any how? Hows that are unimaginable and unexplainable and unbearable. But what is the why? We just came off Pesach, we're still the taste of the matzah. The taste of the matzah is still in our mouth. The taste of Pesach is still in our kishkas. And we're marching, we're climbing. So Sefer Achenah points out, not down. Every other countdown is down. Going on vacation, finish your school, going to take finals. Go, you count down, we're counting up. We're not looking forward to the end of something, to the relief or break from something. We're marching towards something. There's a destination, there's a mountain that we're going to gather at the base of, and we are going to be united like never before. And we're climbing and climbing and climbing and growing and progressing and adding until the Yantav of Shavuos when we'll stand together and we receive that Torah anew. We recite the Birchas HaTorah every day, whether you get Nali or just every morning, Birchas HaShachar. And the Birchas HaTorah are a formula. They are the formula for Yiddishkeit. Not only thematically in what matters most, but also chronologically, in terms of how and when it happened, but also our priorities as we relive each year this experience. And in the Birchas HaTorah we say, Asher b'acharbanu mikol ha'amin. V'nasallanu estagasa. First, HaKadosh Baruch Hu chose us. Before he gave us, and before he charged us, and before he bestowed upon us that sacred Torah, that manual for life, before, he turned us into a nation, he turned us into a people, he turned us into a family. The prerequisite and the foundation to receiving the Torah is to first become an Am. The word Am, nation, comes from the words of the Salvechik, Im. You're not an am, a nation of separate and apart and divided and disagreeing people. You're a nation, you're an am when you are in, when you are integrated, and when our lives intersect, and when we celebrate each other's pleasure, and when we deeply and profoundly feel each other's pain. This march towards Sinai begins with We don't get to stand there and to re-receive that Torah until we prove that we are chosen, that we've come together, that we have melded and gelled into an Am once again. Veshechter and I are here because we feel so connected and we are not here representing ourselves. We're not here representing only our families. We're not here representing only our shuls, our kihilos. We are here representing so many Jews around the world who in this something like this strikes or happens, feels so deeply connected. Our heart beats with the heart of Klal Yisrael in Eretz Yisrael, with you, the people of Ephraim, with the deep family, 
the Jewish people around the world. We are here because we couldn't stay away. We are here because we need to and want to be together in this moment of something that is so much, is so much bigger than any of us. On Pesach, we read, Shirashir Pischili, Achosira Yasi, Yonasi Samasi. Beautiful song. It was song, but still a beautiful song. In which we say, Open your heart to me, my sister, my love, my dove, Samasi, my perfection. Yonasi, the Jewish people in this Pasuk Shlomo Amalach, the wisest of all men, compared Klai Yisrael to a dove. Of all animals, of all possible species of birds, why specifically a Yonah? Why a dove? What feature, what characteristic, what is the hallmark of this dove? That Shlomo Amalach was trying to paint that picture for us as we read Shirashim, this love story that began us on this march, on this journey, to stand under that chuppah of Har Sinai with Hashem. Why Davka? Rabbi Yochan observed if the Torah had not been given, we would be able to look at and observe the animal kingdom and draw and derive lessons for life, Midos, character, from simply watching and observing. Modesty from the cat, and honest labor, hard work from the ant, and we would learn our eyes. We would learn the notion of fidelity, of monogamy, of loyalty from the Yonah. Good manners from the rooster, but from the Yonah, from the dove, says the Gemara, what we would learn is loyalty. Loyalty. What does it mean to be loyal? What does it mean to be connected? What does it mean to care for another? The Medrashir Shemamah tells us that the dove, the Yonah, is innocent and graceful and distinguished. And most of all, the Yonah is faithful and fiercely loyal. And these are the character traits of Kalah To be fiercely loyal. The way a parent is for a child. That we will protect from any harm, any injury, any hurt, any danger is the way we need to be towards one another. Fiercely loyal and faithful and loving and caring. No matter our disagreements, no matter our diversity, of which there are so many legitimate things to disagree about. The hallmark of our people like Yonasi is to be and to have that faithfulness. Now is not the time, but it explains an unusual halacha, dafke in our parsha the korban of the Yoledas, who brings out of order, there's a Balaturim, an altar of Kelm, a beautiful Torah, the loyalty. Because the korban, you only bring one, not the pair. We don't want to separate the faithful, the loyal, the fiercely loyal. Because that's what it means to be a member of Kalal Yisrael. And that's what Kalal Yisrael needs at this time. There's so much disloyalty. And important topics that people disagree about, they're important. We have to learn to disagree agreeably. We have to learn to focus on the foundation that overwhelmingly we have in common. A history, the history that is responsible for our being here today, and the destiny of where we are going together. And with whatever we disagree about, there is so much more that we have in common. 
the hallmark of our people and the only way we stand under that mountain and the only way that we end this pain, this gallus, and we welcome that gaula, is if we can practice that fierce, fierce loyalty. Loyalty is expressed not only in the big momentous moments, tragically and sadly, when we, fight, when we face those threats from outside, these big moments, these monumental and historic tragedies, we gel and we come together. But those feelings naturally fade. And Amir Tashem, they should be not only few and far between, they should be never repeated again. And as time goes on and as that fades, as we saw previously when Klai's all came together, when three boys were missing and then discovered to be murdered, and we couldn't imagine, we'd never lose that achdus, that unity, that love, that loyalty, and how quickly did it fade? How quickly did it disappear within families, within friendships? among neighbors and within Kalal Yisrael, over important things to disagree about. But if we want to finally end this pain, if we want to react and respond with a Kabbalah and a commitment, if we want to change our condition and our reality in the world, and the all too frequent news of Jews still being attacked in Yerushalayim, Yerak Kodesh, throughout the width and breadth of Eretz Yisrael, in New York, and other places around the world, we need to learn to become fiercely loyal again. Not temporarily, and not in a reaction immediately, but permanently. Permanently. What does that mean, to be loyal? This prerequisite to the love affair with the Ribbono Shalom is the ability to prove that we love one another, that we're loyal to one another. What does that mean, to be loyal? and to love and to care. It means to love the people that we don't like. Not everybody's so likable. Not everybody in the world is likable. And I don't know of any mitzvah in the Torah that obligates us to like every year, every fellow Jew. There are unlikable behaviors and character traits and beliefs and choices that people in our families and among our friends make. But the Torah says, you don't have to like everybody, but you have to love them. Love is a verb, not an adjective. Love is loyalty. Loyalty is to give the benefit of the doubt. Loyalty is to judge favorably. Loyalty is to cut slack. Loyalty is to make space and room for other opinions and other conclusions and other approaches and other personalities. If we want to imitate and emulate that yoga, that dove, if we want to bring that gaula, we need to learn we need to learn that loyalty, that fierce, fierce loyalty. Loyalty and love means, as the mission of the Bryce and Perkyabos tells us, Davka, this time of the year we're supposed to work on the, the Memchas, the 48 ways the Torah is acquired, and one of them is to be no say ba'ol im chaveiro. To be no say ba'ol im chaveiro. I've never seen a scene in my life like we saw earlier today of Klai Yisrael, pouring down on a shivah On a shivah So many there to be menachem, the Avelim, and so many there to draw nechama from the Avelim. I've never seen such an outpouring, such a response, such a line, such a crowd control. I've never seen it. What a testament to Klai Yisrael. What a testament to this community. What a testament to the deep family. But what's going to happen starting tomorrow when they get up from shivah? What will be next week and next month? What about the last family? 
What about a family that's struggling or suffering? Not as victims of terror, but from something else that feel lonely, that feel invisible, that feel inconsequential, that are suffering and struggling in silence. Are we no say behold It's very interesting. There's a phenomenal book called Option B. Sheryl Sandberg, who was the COO, Facebook Meta, whatever it's called now. And after she suffered a horrific, very, very sudden loss of her husband, she wrote a book, Option B, when life takes option A away from you and you have to turn to option B. And it's a phenomenal manual about how to be a loyal friend. What to do, what not to do, what to say, what not to say. The not to, often more important than what to. And she gives a lot of very practical advice. Not for now, but for example, don't say the open-ended question. If you need anything, don't hesitate to reach out. If I can do anything. Nobody's who ever been in a situation that needed help. Nobody. I've never seen anybody who takes anyone up on that offer. If there's anything I can do, if you ever need anything, don't, don't hesitate, reach out. Nobody reacts, nobody reacts to that. And she gives guidelines, fantastic ideas. Not do you need a meal, but what toppings do you like on your pizza? How do you like your hamburger? I'm dropping off dinner tonight. Don't ask the open-ended questions, say what you're going to do. And why am I sharing this with you? Because she adds, she quotes studies, she quotes therapists, but she writes, quote, some things in life cannot be fixed, they can only be carried. They can't be fixed, they can only be carried. Chazal were very specific when they told us that one of the ways Torah is acquired is not to fix your friend's problems, but to carry the burden with them. To be no say, Someone to walk in this room carrying an incredibly heavy box or a piece of luggage. Sympathy is to look at them and say, wow, that looks so heavy. I feel so bad for them. That must be really difficult. They're really schwitzing. Empathy is to run over and carry it with them. To bear half of the weight on you. To make it just a little bit lighter for them because you are demonstrating to them that you're carrying it with them. Chazal said there are problems that are not fixable. There are people that we can't bring back. There's pain that we cannot do, but we can make it a little bit lighter by carrying that burden together, by being no say but That's loyalty. That's what it means to be a Yonah. That's how we have to respond. That's an answer to a lama, not lama. That's part of our why of to have that fierce loyalty, even for people we don't like, especially for people we don't like. But to think about what can I do to be no Ba'olam Chavero with the D family who will continue to have the love and support of extraordinary people in extraordinary community, but also in the merit and honor of Lucy, Maya, and Rina with others who don't have as much a spotlight and attention who are in the shadows and who are suffering and struggling, if we're going to learn something from this extraordinary family, it's to care about everybody with that loyalty and with that love. Incredible research recently came out that showed the impact of a text message. We sometimes think, what am I going to write a text message? It really matters. I'm thinking about you. I'm checking in. How are you today? What does that mean anything? If we only stood, understood the difference that that makes, to be no say behold, to lift that burden, to carry it a little bit, to make it a little bit lighter. This is the prerequisite to a relationship with Hashem, Tawadi Arizal, quoted by the kids of Shulchan Aruch and others, it says, before you can open that sitter and start davening in the morning, 
You have to first say, I accept upon myself Before I start talking to you, I'm going to take a moment to think about and love your other children, my siblings, the ones I like and the ones that are unlikable, but I'm still going to love. Before I can talk to you, i got to send a text and think about it and talk about somebody who might feel invisible and inconsequential and in the shadows. It's why some of us look disheveled and we're not listening to music or attending simchas because we're all in Avelis right now for the Talmudim of Rabbi Akiva, who with all that Torah learning, all the Nasa'lan of Astaraso, the love and the loyalty, forgot that love and that loyalty. It means, it means, I'm handing over the microphone momentarily, loyalty and love mean making spaces for others and for other opinions. The Gemara says, Keshem is a bracha that you recite when you see a myriad of Jews together, when you see an incredible gathering of diverse Jews together. The Gemara says the reason, the driver of that bracha is just as no two faces are identical, similarly opinions, personalities, conclusions, people's thinking is not the same. What's the kashem the same? I mean kashem the same way. The same way no two people look exactly alike. So too, no two personalities, no two thinking, no two approaches are exactly the same. Kashem. Kashem. Years ago, I came to see the Shires after their loss. But Galim's brother said this pshat. Kashem. You never saw someone who looks different than you, who has different hair color, who has different facial features, who has different complexion, and you never had a tie on them. You never came to them and said, how dare you not look exactly like me? How dare you not be identical to me? How dare you not be the mirror image of me? We understand that's the way we were born. We're not in control. That's what our DNA produced. That's who we are. Kishen. The same way you never had a taina, you never had a complaint, an argument, you never had a grudge, you never held it against someone that they look different than you? No. No, that's similarly deosayim, personalities, approaches, conclusions, opinions, and big issues, and critical issues. People are entitled, they're built differently, they're designed differently, they come from different backgrounds, and they're entitled to that different opinion. We have to make space for fellow Jews. Chazal tell us, so the Makar, this is the source, we end our Shemona Esra Amida by taking three steps backwards. And then we say, Before we can ask Hashem for peace, for Shalom, we take three steps back. I want to tell you one of the most beautiful Torahs I ever saw. Rav Menachem ben Zion Zaks was a Rav in Chicago. He was the son-in-law of Rav Tzip Frank, the chief rabbi of Yerushalayim. And he has to say from Menachem Tzion on Pirkei Yavos, he has many Sfarim Menachem Tzion on Pirkei Yavos, he says the following. This is the most beautiful idea. You can't hope for or wish for or expect there to be peace if you're not willing to take three steps back and make some room for others. If it's your way or the highway, if it's your opinion, if everyone has to concede to what you think, there's never going to be peace. You have to be willing to take three steps back. And that's why Kesha Omar Mahri 
Nosef was there. And then he says something amazing. What else do we do when we take our three steps back at the end of the Shemona Ezra? We bow to our left, and we bow to our right. If you want peace, look at the people to the left of you, and the people to the right of you. Religiously to the left of you and to the right of you, politically to the left of you and the right of you, in every which way. Bow, acknowledge the people to the left of you and the right of you, and now you can genuinely and authentically ask for shalom for peace. If you can't take three steps back and make space for others, if you can't turn to the left and right and say, I love you, I don't like your opinion, and I'll debate you, and I'll disagree agreeably, but I love you fiercely, and I give you legitimacy and I make space for you, and I bow in recognition and honor and in love to you, then we can't hope for, and we can't want or wish peace. There's so much more to say, but I'll end just with the story. I hear there's no clock in the shul. Shul Lamalam and Azman. Shefter and I are flying back tomorrow. We have until our flight. But some of you work, so we'll have a little Rahmanas. So much more to share. But a little Rahmanas. Today was Yom HaShoah. In Kranax, there was a Jew, Yankel, who owned a bakery. He survived the camps and he once told someone, you know why I'm still alive? Do you know how I survived? He says, I was a kid, I was a teenager, I was young. How am I here? How did I get through this? Let me tell you the story. We were on a train, we were in a boxcar being taken to Auschwitz. Night came and it was freezing. It was deathly cold in that boxcar. You told the story also when? Last week, last month? Let's <laughs> stay away from the stories. <laughs> This holy year, the survivor said, the night came and it was deathly cold. It was unbearably cold in that boxcar. It was frigid, it's freezing. The Germans would leave the cars on the side of the track overnight, sometimes leave it that way for days on end. No food, no place to relieve oneself, no blankets, nothing to stay warm, no ability to light a fire. Just exposed to the fierce elements. He said, sitting next to me was an older Jew, this beloved elderly Jew from my hometown I recognized. I had never seen him like this. He was shivering from head to toe. He was shaking. The life was coming out of him by the moment. So I wrapped my arms around him. I began rubbing him to warm him up. I took my hands, I rubbed his back, I rubbed his arms, I rubbed his legs, I rubbed his face, I rubbed his neck. I cuddled close to him. And I begged him the whole night, just hang on, just stay with me. Just warmed him. All night long, a little rubbing, a cuddling, a drawing close, all night long. He says, I was tired, I was freezing cold myself, my fingers were numb, I couldn't feel them. But I didn't stop just rubbing him, just drawing close to him, just asking him and begging him, just hold on. Hours and hours went by and finally the night passed and the sun came and it took away just the edge of the frigidness a bit. There was some warmth in the cabin. And the survivor said, I looked around, I looked around the boxcar to see some of the other Jews in the car. He said, but there was deathly silence. 
And I looked around the boxcar, and there were frozen, frozen bodies whose neshamas had left them. He said, nobody else in the train, in that car, made it through the night. They died from the frost. Only two people survived. The old man and me. The old man survived because somebody kept him warm. I survived because I was warming somebody else. If we want to survive this goddess, if we want to not have to pay these shiva calls, if we want to finally end this darkness, then we have to show this loyalty to warm up the people around us. Elika Kleisenberger said, when we left the camps, we never imagined that a Jew could ever hate another Jew. We didn't imagine. How could it be after what we had been through? When the Ds get up from Shiva tomorrow, we have to not be able to imagine that a Jew could ever hate another Jew. After what this community, after what Kalal Yisrael has been through, we have to warm up one another. We have to check in and love one another. We have to be nosy and chavero with one another. We have to be more loyal to one another. And Amir Tzashem in that tzchus, by making that space, by taking those steps back to make that room for others, by bowing and acknowledging the people to the left and to the right of us, bizochet to the great shalom, to the ultimate peace, and to the ultimate end of days.
as we mentioned, Rabbi Di is a very positive person. And he has a certain perspective, which is a very noble one. But for the rest of us who are just simple people, I shouldn't say about any of you, for the two of us who felt very small and simple this morning, I walked out saying to me, he's very positive, but this is a very dark time. The Gemara Psachim talks about the story of Rabbi Yosef. <coughs> On one occasion, he went up to the heavens and he was given an insight into what's happening behind the curtain. And he came back and his friends were so excited to hear what he was going to report. And what he came back and shared with them was one very simple message. You're not going to believe what I saw. But everything was flipped. We have a perspective here of who's important and who's prominent, and suddenly I went to another world and I saw that everything was flipped. And all the people who we thought were so important really are not that significant. And some of the people who maybe we have overlooked and not paid enough attention to, in fact, in the eyes of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, are extremely important. Our perception, our perspective, is very different than the one that HaKadosh Baruch Hu has for our world. Which is why the Nabi Yeshaya, describing the experience of our lives, writes very clearly, we say it on a tiny seaburk, the chasm that exists between Shamayim Ba'aretz came Gavu Drachai Midarchechem Umachshavosai Mimachshavoseichem. There's such a tremendous gap that exists between the understanding of the workings of Akadish Baruch and the processing that we are able to do here. So, what does that mean? Do we live in an alternative universe? Do we live in a different world? Do we inhabit a different experience? Rabbi Shimshon Pigas writes in one of his Sarim, in explaining this, he gives such a beautiful mushal, he says, imagine you have a parent and a child looking out from a window on the third floor of a building, and they're both looking out into the street. The child is only two and a half years old. The parent is already an adult. Of course, they see and they notice everything the same. They notice all the cars passing by, all the trucks, they see people walking in different directions. The difference between both of their perspectives is the child does not know how to interpret what it is that they see. They see something yellow, they see something green. The adult, when they see that, they understand. This is a school bus. There are children being picked up or dropped off to go to school. This is a garbage truck, and the collectors are coming around to do their jobs. And this truck is delivering mail. What they see, they have an ability to interpret. And that's what it means, he explained, it's not that we see differently than HaKadosh Baruch Hu, it's that we have great difficulty interpreting what it is that we see. We see the same world as HaKadosh Baruch Hu sees. But it's difficult for us to understand the interpretation, to internalize what it is that we're seeing. We just celebrated Pesach, as we mentioned. And it's the Chodesh HaGugula, it's the Zman HaGugula, and you ask yourself, and I feel humbled not only to be in the presence of the family that we are with this morning, but to be in the presence of people who are actually furthering our guru. Let's be honest. I am not. 
I'm not bringing the gula closer by living in the United States. And it's something that bothers me every single day. I understand there's one easy answer, move to Israel. Got it. <laughs> Hopefully it's what we call in Gemara language, a mum over, something that in the right time we'll be able to fix. But speaking in the presence of people who are actively being a part of producing this Geula, that we're all watching, that we're all experiencing, is very humbling. And you ask yourself, is this a part of Geula? How many lives have to be lost? How many families have to be destroyed? How many siblings have to be killed? How many Leviahs do we need to attend? Think back to the Geula in Mitzrayim, where Moshe Rabbeinu was tasked with negotiating with Paro, with trying to get the Jewish people out and to finally be free, to have their gula. And Moshe Rabbeinu turns back to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and he says, Me'oz basi al Paro heira la'am hazeh. From the moment I stepped into Paro's office, from the moment I started negotiating on behalf of the Jewish people, things only got worse and nothing at all got better. And this is part of the gula. Moshe Rabbeinu had the same question that I have, and that you have, and that your children have, and that Jews have had for so many years. How can this be part of the Ula? And the Torah Tamima writes in his commentary on Chumash, a very famous set of phrases. What that means is that there's a tahalich ha Gula is a process, and Gula unfolds. And as part of Gula, you may encounter questions like Moshe Rabbeinu had, which are, May us basi al paro How can this be a part of the Gula? What does Gula mean when this is what we're experiencing? The way I think about it is the Nevi'im sometimes describe Gula, Ahri Sayyamin, in terms of a woman who is pregnant and giving birth. And for anybody who's been through that experience or been close to someone who's gone through that experience, you know that along the way, sometimes there are unexpected things that happen. Sometimes there are cramps, and sometimes there's just a doctor visit where we expected everything to be a regular checkup, and you come home that night, and it's not at all what you anticipated, and it's not what you expected. And why didn't your spouse come to that appointment? Because we didn't expect anything differently than what we've heard every other appointment. And sometimes that's part of the process of a pregnancy. And maybe that's what the Nevi'im mean when they describe gu'ula in some way to be similar to a pregnancy. That there are unexpected cramps along the way and sometimes very painful moments in this pregnancy. But that's been the experience that the Jewish people have had. And it leaves us with lots of questions. Every summer, I'm privileged to spend two weeks together with my family in Camp Simcha. It's the happiest place in the world and the most painful place to be at the same time. When I first went there six or seven years ago, never in my wildest dreams did I imagine what I would be having conversations with some of the campers about. I was told if there's a Shaila in the middle of Kriya Satari, you'll answer it. And if something comes up on Shabbos, they're not sure what to do. Or if a mezuzah falls down, they'll tell them where to hang it up. 
I said, it sounds like a nice idea. Little did I know I'd be talking to 150 kids who are struggling with their own issues, struggling with their health, undergoing chemotherapy, young children, and most of all, struggling with their amuna. I was not equipped to deal with this at all. Nobody told me what to say. And the truth is, I really had nothing to say. I walked around and continued to do so with a notepad, and I listen, and I take notes because I'm so inspired. Just to share with you one small glimpse, I shared it before with Rav Shlomo. This summer, I was asked to speak to the oldest division. And on Shabbos afternoon, they wanted to have a very open and frank conversation about emuna issues. Now, how do you talk to 16 to 19-year-olds about emuna issues when they've just been through chemotherapy or on active chemotherapy, and they have a million and one questions on the Ribbon Shalom, as they should have. And it's not just a question of why me. It's a lot deeper than that. And we had a difficult conversation. After we were finished, two of the girls came over to me. Ironically, one was from Williamsburg, one was from Monroe, two different segments of the soccer community whose parents would never talk to each other. But the two of them became so close through their time together in the summer because they were experiencing the same kind of illness. They're both two and a half years in remission. And they came over to me and they were crying and they were embarrassed. And I asked them what was wrong. They wanted to talk privately. And they said they never shared this with their families, with their parents, with their siblings, but because they've become so close to each other, they shared their most inner feelings over the course of the weeks they spent together in camp. And they were surprised to learn that both of them offer the same tefillah every single day. And both of them offer a tefillah. Although they're two and a half years in remission, they asked that HaKadosh Baruch should make them sick again. And I looked at them in shock. Couldn't understand what this was about. And they said, the kirvas elokim that we felt when we laid in those hospital beds alone. It was during COVID. We were undergoing chemo. They told us because we were over a certain age, even our parents couldn't come in. And at times we were alone, nights, Shabbosos, and we felt HaKadosh Baruch. And it's something we have missed every single day since we've been in remission. These are the kinds of conversations we have. And I remember after my first summer engaging in these discussions, I called my great teacher in Yerushalayim, Rabbi Asher Weiss, and I told him, there's something wrong with me. I just spent two weeks in Camp Simcha. I'm falling apart. I was not prepared for this. I had nothing to say. And I have no idea. These kids' questions are really powerful. And to me, I said, I feel like they're right. So what should I do? And he told me something that has stuck with me since that moment. 
He asked me, challenge yourself and think about who is the greatest believer in HaKadosh Baruch Hu in all the pages of Chumash. Most notably, it was Avraham Avinu. Look what he was prepared to do. The Asara Nisyonos, each one progressively getting more difficult, more complicated, more of a challenge for him. So Avraham Avinu goes down in history as the greatest believer in HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And yet, what the Medrash tells us is after HaKadosh Baruch Hu instructs Avraham Avinu to go perform the Akedah, Avraham Avinu comes home, only to find his wife Sarah has died. And the Medrash writes, Hischil Avram Avinu Tamem. Avram Avinu begins to wonder and challenge and ask HaKadosh Baruch What do you want from me? First he told me, I didn't have children. You promised me I was going to have a future. Yitzchak is finally born. So much excitement. Then you say, I'm a faithful, loyal servant of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. I'm a Yonasi Samasi. I'm loyal to my principles. I went. I brought him up to the arcade, and then you say, take him down, put him back up, bring something else, bring him home. I come home only to find Sari Yimeo has died. What do you want from me? Does that diminish the belief of Avraham Avinu and HaKadosh Baruch Hu, even one iota? It's the sign that you're a believer. If you have questions and you're struggling with it, it's because you do believe. You believe that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is a Kol You believe he is Metiv, Laroi V'latovim. And you believe that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is Hamerachim Al Kol Masav. And if you believe that, that's why you're struggling, because this doesn't fit. But you have permission to ask questions, just like Avraham Avinu did. And just like every single great thinking Jew has done since then, Moshe Rabbeinu, the greatest, the Adon Anavim, live with these questions. You know the story about Moshe Goldkorn. I don't know if we're allowed to tell stories. <laughs> Moshe Goldkorn story. Kavna Gebel. <clears throat> when I tell a story, I'm just not going to look this way. <laughs> Moshe Goldkorn was a Yid in the Kavna Ghetto, who months before Pesach, was gathering in the cuff of his pants any grain that he could find out there in the fields. And everybody knew that on Erev Pesach, as a good Hasidic Yid, he was planning to crush up those matzahs on Erev Pesach and to bake himself a matzah, risking his own life. And so he did. Erev Pesach, he goes and he crushes up the matzah, and everyone can't get over what the Messiris Nefesh of this individual. And the story is written by the Rav of the Kovnagin. And he writes that he notices out of the window in his home that Moshe Goldkorn is walking toward his house with blood coming out of his mouth on Erev Pesach. And he understood that obviously it must be that Moshe Goldkorn was caught while he was baking his matzahs and they beat him up, broke his teeth, and now he's bleeding from his mouth. And he was worried as the rope of the Kavna Ghetto what am I supposed to say to such a person? He's going to come and ask me, how could I could do this to me? What am I going to say? There's nothing to say. How could I could do this to you? Well, he's terrified to be confronted with this question. And ultimately, Moshe Goldkorn comes and knocks on the door. He's in agony, he's in pain. And the rub answers the door and he turns to him and he says, Moshe, how can I help you? And he says, Ichab ain't shayla. I only have one question. You know what my question is? And he's waiting. 
waiting for this question. You see, my family, as you know, we're Hasidic Shahidim. And we never eat gibrox on Pesach. But now I don't have teeth. So I want to know if this year I can drink the matzah. And it's the questions of the Jewish people throughout history that are what have kept us alive. It's the questions of the Jewish people. It doesn't matter what the answer is. It's the questions of the Jewish people that are the reason why we're still here. My father once told me, once a month we say Kiddush Levana. We're going to say it next week. And in Kiddush Levana, the Gemara tells us we're supposed to say Kiddush Levana standing. Why? There are many tefillos that we offer in a sitting position. Why should we stand up? And the reason why the Gemara says is because we have an understanding that when we recite Kiddush Levana, the Shekhinah is there together with us. And out of respect to the Shekhinah's presence, we should be standing as the Shekhinah is there. More so, seemingly, than at other times than we offer a tefillah. So I ask you, you have a chance once a month to engage HaKadosh Baruch on a personal basis. The Rebbe Shalom comes. We have to stand because he's here. You know how many requests I have to challenge and to ask HaKadosh Baruch when I have his ear? Let's use this moment to ask HaKadosh Baruch next week when we say Kiddush Levan. Let's ask him to take care of all of those who are struggling, all those who have financial problems, all those who have emotional issues, all those who have physical ailments, all those who have so many challenges, insurmountable challenges. Why not ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu find a cure for cancer? Why not ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu to take care of all of those people who are struggling in so many different ways? And what is it? One request we ask of HaKadosh Baruch Hu by Kiddush Levan. You know, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I look outside and I see that the Levana is not whole. And it really bothers me. It really bothers me. So please, this moment that I have, a special intimate request of you, can you please make sure that you fill in the deficiency of the moon? It sounds ridiculous. I don't know how many of you have ever gone outside and actually been bothered by the fact that the moon is not whole. Probably most of us never even noticed, and if we have, it didn't bother us. It's just the way the Gilgal HaChama works. It's natural. So why don't we waste this opportunity to talk about something that is so irrelevant to our lives that we actually don't really care about? And my father told me that perhaps the interpretation is why is the Levana so small? We go back to the first story in Parshas Bereshis. When HaKadosh Baruch created the Chama and the Levana, the sun and the moon, of equal proportion and equal size and equal power. And the Levana is surveying all that's going on and wondering, what's the plan? You can't have two governors running a town. You can't have two mayors who are going to be in charge. You can't have two kings, two prime ministers. It doesn't work. You know very well. So what's the plan? We're going to have the sun and the moon. How are we going to divide up the roles? What should I be doing? And the moon goes to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, not with a complaint, but a basic question. What's the plan? 
You created the sun and the moon. What do you want us to do? Adam Kedushvaruch says, you know, that's a really good question. And the answer is going to be, we're going to be memayin alabam. We're going to make you smaller. What kind of response is that? What did I do wrong? That was the first time in history where somebody stood up and challenged Akadosh with the question of Tzadik Rabbah. What did I do wrong? Why do I deserve this? Why am I smaller? What have I done differently than the sun? All I did was pose a simple question, a question that any of us would have asked. And it's a very legitimate question, and Akadosh Baruch says, you're right, but we're gonna make you smaller. That was the first time in history that we experience, we encounter, we engage, that is the most profoundly impactful Jewish theological question that we've been asking for the last few thousand years. And that is what we reserve Kiddush Levana for every month. We ask bring us to a time when you're going to round out the Levana and give us that answer to Tzadik Levana. Give us that perspective, give us that understanding of why it is that we experience life in the way that we do and why we see things from the perspective that we do. And sometimes we just don't see HaKadosh Baruch Hu with that clarity and we don't have the ability to appreciate. The Rebona Shalom's Chesed, the Rebona Shalom's Kindness, and we're left with a whole lot of questions. In Shira Shiram, as we just read on Pesach, we say about HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Mashgiach menachalonos meitzitz min hacharakim, and Rabbi Yisrael Salantar so beautifully explains that at times in our lives we have different perspectives. What is the difference between a peekhole and a window? A window is fully transparent. I look out the window and you look in and we see each other and we can communicate. What is a peekhole? You know, when our children want to show they're so independent. So they want to go out to the bus by themselves. But any responsible parent is going to want to give them independence, but yet you're going to stand behind the door and look out the people and make sure that your child is going to get to the bus safely. And if any danger or harm comes their way, you're going to immediately intervene. When the child turns around to watch whether or not they have their independence, what do they see? Nothing. I'm watching them. I'm being watchful over them but they don't see me. And at times, says Rabbi Yisrael Salantar, we see HaKadosh Baruch Hu as Mashgiach Menachalonas. We see him in a very transparent manner, looking straight through a window at us. We see him, he sees us. But at other times, we have that experience of Meitzitz Min HaTarakim. When we turn around and we just don't see HaKadosh Baruch Hu, he nezeh omeh achar there's a wall in front of us. We feel like there's a wall between us and the Ribbona Shalom. And we don't appreciate that at those moments as well, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is watching. But he's watching through that people. And we turn around that we don't see him. But he sees all of us. It's late. <laughs> But allow me to end with two requests. One is a request that I have with the Rebona Shalom. And one is a request for all of us. And most importantly, for the two of us who have come 
I'm just sharing it with you because it's what is on our hearts. The first of the Rebana Shalom is a number of years ago I saw a tefillah of Rabbi Moshe Leib Sassaver in the early 1800s. He penned an amazingly powerful tefillah. And it goes like this. Rebona Olam, he asks HaKadosh Baruch, Have misnai imanu kishem sha'anu misnai imach. Treat us the way we treat you. What does that mean? We have full confidence and belief in you, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We believe that you are We believe that you are good, that you are the ultimate good. Even though we don't see you, and we have no way of understanding how or why you do things. So we have this belief in HaKadosh we have this understanding in the kindness of the Rebona Shalom, even though we don't see it. And we ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu to do the same for us, and that is, HaKadosh Baruch Hu have belief in us the same way we believe in you. And sometimes you may look at us and you don't see everything you want to see. But imagine, imagine that it's there. If at moments like this, we can still say that we believe in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we ask, and we have every right to ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu, see things that maybe you otherwise don't see. Look at us maybe a little bit differently. Have Rahmanas have mercy on us. And see the Midas Tudenim that's latent beneath all of us. And secondly, when Moshe Rabbeinu completes the incredible task of building a Mishkan, of bringing HaKadosh Baruch into the world through this grand edifice, and there's so much attention to detail, so many psukim, so many parshios and sefer shmos that go through every last little detail that is so important in constructing a Mishkan properly. When they're all done, Moshe Rabbeinu, as Rashi quotes from the Medrash, offers a tefillah, Yiratzon Shetishra Shechina B'masa Yadeichem. May it be the will of HaKadosh Baruch Hu that the Shechina should reside in everything we have built, in all that we've done. After all this work and effort, I hope that HaKadosh Baruch Hu will finally come. And the Ksavsofer wonders, why did Moshe Rabbeinu have to offer this tefillah? From the outset, the first instruction we were given is the Asuli Migdash Ben Shachanti Bisoka. HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself promised if you follow the rules and you build this Mishkan the way you're supposed to, I in turn will do my part and I will come reside there. So why does Moshe Rabbeinu have to ask? Does he not trust HaKadosh Baruch Hu that he's going to be good on his promise? Does he not believe that that is going to be the outcome? And secondly, ask the Ksavsofer, normally when we offer a tefillah, we have a subject of who the tefillah is being offered to. And here, for some reason, it's missing. We just say, and the most important part of the sentence is missing. Explains himself so far. We're misunderstanding this tefillah. This was not Moshe Rabbeinu turning to HaKadosh Baruch and asking him anything. 
the Rebona Shalom promised, and he knew he had to come through with his promise and bring his Shrina into this great Mishkan. Moshe Rabbeinu, now that everyone was finished working on the Mishkan, turns to the Jewish people and he says, Yehi Ratzon, may it be your will. After all the months of preparation and all of the investment of time and all of your focused energies and everything that you've done, rallying around this cause, tomorrow you're all going home back to work. Tomorrow everyone's going back to life. Will the Shechina be able to be comfortable there as well? Will HaKadosh Baruch Hu be able to find a place in your Maisei Yadechem as well when you're not rallying around this cause? When you're not building a Mishkan? When you're not coming together as a community, but when you're on, a, on your own in your office, on your phone, on your WhatsApp group, whatever you're a part of, on your Facebook group? Is HaKadosh Baruch Hu going to feel comfortable there also when you step away from this project? That was Moshe Rabbeinu's heartfelt tefillah, not to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but to the Jewish people, challenging them. And that's what I felt today on the last day of Shiva. We've rallied around, I shouldn't say we, you have rallied around this unfortunate, but absolutely incredible cause. You have done everything you could as a community to give Nechama, to give Chizuk, to continue to support not only that one family that was impacted, but all of the families who are impacted, which is all about Israel. Everyone who feels a sense of loss and grief. And the challenge that we have for ourselves is, We're all going to step away from this tragedy. Everyone's going to go back to work. We're all going back to our own lives. You're not going to sit there and be there in that home for the next couple of weeks or months or years. But can we make sure that that which we rallied around is something that has a comfortable place even when we step away from that cause? Even when we're not focused as a community, as heightened as we are now, on the one cause that bound all of us together, is that something that we can bring with us outside of this experience and be something that we can challenge ourselves to feel moving forward as well? May it be not the will of HaKadosh Baruch but may it be our will. We should see our efforts, that the Rebona Shalom should appreciate all that we have done and give us the strength and give us the courage, give us the clarity of mind and purpose and vision, give us the fortitude to take all that we have gained, all the inspiration, all that we have given, all that we have offered, and all that we have received into all the weeks and months ahead that we will be facing. Shanishma, Bibisirotalot, Utehei. I feel like I should tell a story, but I'm not. I'm going to end with a bracha. I want to end with a bracha and with thank you. Thank you to all the chabra and the shul that were setting this up. 
There are a lot of last minute details to make this happen. Thank you to a bunch of the youth that showed up today at 6 p.m. to come and help. And you really helped a lot. The bracha I want to end with is actually uh, what we said on Shabbos from the Rashbam. Remember what we said on Shabbos. These days of Yom HaZikaron, Yom HaShoah, and the Tzarot that we've been through, there's always two words that everyone always goes through to make any type of sense of what's going on. Those two words we just said in Parashat Shmini. Bikrovaya Kadesh. I sanctify myself amongst those that are closest to me and we don't understand the whole secret of Nadav and Avil. But that's how we usually interpret it. They're so close and through them I become sanctified. But we use that for the six million and we use that for many other tragedies. I thought that it was a mind-blowing chiddush from Ayvandis Rashbam last week that he says it's not what it's referring to. Bikrovaya Kadesh, Rashi's grandson says, is referring to Hanotarim. Bikrovai, those that still stay close, even when they have every reason to run so far away. Those that can still stand and hold on, and tonight we got so much we got so much to hold on to. Bikrovai Akadesh. That's through that Hashem's name becomes sanctified in the world. But I feel so inspired from everything that we've been experiencing and the words we heard tonight. Take it one step further, and this is my brother. Shiva's, as was mentioned, Shiva's about Shiva's ending. And life, even though we can't fathom it, is going to go on. Bikrovaya Kadesh, if we stay close to each other, Bikrovai, in the closeness of Kedusha, in the closeness of Tahara, in the closeness of Simcha, in the closeness of Talmud Torah and of Tefillah, Akadesh, Bikrovai Akadesh. And Be'ez Hashem, I tried to get the Rebbein to stay for Shabbos. Uh, have better luck next time. Bikrovai, we need to stay close. We have to stay close. Closer than ever. Closer than ever. And I feel that it's there, and it should just grow vital. And raise Hashem like that. We will never have to come back together like this. Khalilah. And as Leo told us this morning in the Shabbat, when he stopped davening this past Shabbos, and he said to the Chazan, he stopped the tefillah, and he said to the Chazan in Zayd Ranan, before Kedusha, Kadosh, 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 Maya, Lucy, Maya, Rina, Kadosh, 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 Hashem Tzvakot, having them in mind, through them, the light that they have filled this earth with this week, the whole world will be filled with Kavad Hashem. We should be zochet to keep that, to strengthen that, and to keep, have their flame keep us close, 
So thank you everyone so much for coming. And we should be zelcha for all the, all the good news that Am Yisrael is waiting for us so much. Thank you so much. <laughs>